0: Hello and welcome to the final Sideways podcast. Diving deep into a discography one side at a time. I'm Jerry and with me is Al and we're just a couple of dopes who like to listen to records and talk about them.
1: We continue this time with side D of Pink Floyd's fourth album, Uma And Jerry, you're a liar. We don't go one side at a time because our last episode, we did three sides at a time. Yeah, it's
0: it's amazing how that worked out. And as we tried very hard to uh, wrap our heads around, how are we going to do a four-sided album in two podcasts? And... Or are we going to devote four podcasts to one album? uh, I don't think I would. I don't
1: think I or you would want to talk about Umaguma for four episodes. I don't think anyone would want to listen to four episodes about Umaguma. Right, and Um, not
0: to not to sell the album short because there is some brilliant material uh, on this album. But uh, as, as far as a musical tour de force. It ain't bad. It's cool. There's some neat stuff on it. There's some, some fantastic stuff on it. And there's some other parts that were just kind of really didn't work out.
1: Yeah, and I, I was just thinking um, as we took a break between recording episodes, I was thinking about um, a quote from I believe it was Nick Mason. I think it's in his book um, where they were asking or he was asked to comment on just the nature of, of the studio Album part of Umaguma, where where each band member took a half a side of an LP and did their own completely independent thing. And his his remark was um, sort of sort of in that similar vibe, where yeah, there were some there were some interesting ideas, things that we were doing that um, that worked. There was a lot that we didn't that we did that didn't work. But the most telling thing is that they never did it again.
0: And Another I, thing that was very telling was conversely this album sold pretty well yeah <laughs> they yeah. were <laughs> which is a credit to their live show and certainly to in that respect the you know first half of the album is uh, is live or the first side of the album is live uh but uh there's a it's a it's just a credit to how good the band is live and the audience responded to it by buying the record uh and i'm sure a lot of them were very surprised
1: yeah and i think we were we were debating at the beginning of the last episode what was the focus was it make a studio album and then the live album is the bonus or we want to release a live album and let's let's play around in the studio and put that as a bonus whatever the idea was initially I think what it became was a live album with a studio bonus I think that that's how people buying it saw it Um, I don't think people were rushing out to buy it because of what was on the studio album not that there's anything I'm sorry. Not that there's nothing on the studio album that's worth listening to. I think there's some really strong stuff on the studio album, but I think the the attraction, the draw from most of the record buying public was the live the live stuff.
0: Yeah, I agree entirely. It's, the live stuff is the strongest material on the album, uh, or on the, the the double album, I guess you could say, because it is. Uh, but it's. Definitely a draw to the audience to have, you know, Pink Floyd's first live record, you know, this band that I saw or the band we went to go see, this is their live stuff on a live album. And uh, the album sold, as I said, the album sold well, uh, which is bizarre, not so much because of how strong the live material was, but for how uh, unmusical the rest of it is although not entirely some parts of it are actually can be very are very musical but other parts are just kind of you know mishmashes and interesting psychedelic freakouts and soundscapes but nothing really or not much it's very musical and that's not to say that it's terrible it's just not very musical no
1: and there was definitely material on the previous three albums that you could that you and i have classified on this podcast as very non-musical um you know even something like a saucer full of secrets has very non-musical sections to it but it does have a musical core to it it does have um i i think the musical element brings you back from the non-musical sections of a song like that. Um, With some of the stuff on this particular album, the studio album on Uma you've got, we just talked about several small species. Um, We had sections of Sisyphus. We have some stuff coming up on this half of the studio album that we'll talk about that are non-musical, but don't really have a strong enough musical core to, to bring you back to it. Um, which makes tracks like the first one we'll talk about on this episode, "The Narrow Way," makes them seem much, much more, uh, much grander than they might have been if they were placed on other albums, just because they're up against other things that are just not. Not songs. The Narrow Way is one of two songs on the album. Sisyphus, I think you could categorize as maybe half a song, um, right? But uh, Grandchester Meadows and The Narrow Way are the only two tracks on the album that I would I would say, yeah, those are songs you can listen to that sound like music. Right,
0: and The Narrow Way is some of the stronger material on this album. I mean it's it's David Gilmour. that's his this was his contribution to the project. And uh Gilmour is kinda he's what I've read he's pretty much dismisses it. You know, he hasn't listened to it since it came out and uh and really was just trying to get through it more than anything. But it's uh it's not bad and it was actually pretty good. I mean, David Gilmour and Pink Floyd would go to much greater heights within a few years. But this is a—you know—I really like the what uh, David Gilmour. I, I liked what he did here with Way, parts one through three. I mean, it's—it starts out with a—it's a nice acoustic jam session, and uh, uh, until it isn't, <laughs> <laughs> then, he, then he starts to. Well, you know, this Pink Floyd is a psychedelic band. I guess i would better start going trippy now. Whoa. And it's, uh, but it's, it's a nice way to begin it, and certainly a nice way to begin that side of the, uh, of the record. Um, and what's interesting is, is, this is done in the era where um, heavy, quote-unquote, acid rock, which is really just another term for really heavy driving rock and roll, um, heavy on the bass, your Black Sabbaths, your Deep Purple's, that sort of thing. Dave fuzzes the hell out of his guitar, and uh, he gets, you know, evil rock and roll all over the place, and and uh, and also main walks this line of keeping it really trippy. And it was, you know, this was the stuff that, you know, the the older kids put down the street when they were you know smoking the pots <laughs>
1: um I, yeah <laughs> well i think the the trippier section I, I feel like um and i am not in david gilmore's head of course i have no idea what he's thinking here but i feel like this um this section these these the narrow way parts 1 through 3 i feel like he would have almost preferred to have stayed in a more traditional blues rock um uh, sequence or setup. I, I feel like the the more spacey parts, the space mountain sections, are there as a nod to like, well, I guess I'm in Pink Floyd and this is what Pink Floyd is supposed to sound yeah, like. Yeah, so, a pander
0: to the audience and yeah. uh, maybe not so sarcastic as a, an actual pander, but uh, this is what I do. You know, is sort of the same dynamic with. Um, uh, a Saucer Full of Secrets, where uh, the writing was kind of still in a, a Sid Barrett mode, even though Sid was no longer with the band, or was you know with them very briefly for Saucer Full of Secrets. And uh, this is a, well, we've been playing for several years, and we, we do these uh, trippy acid tests, and all this uh, far out light show and uh, it's part of our music now. So I guess I need to go in this direction.
1: Yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a natural uh, way for these, these songs to go. Maybe part two, part two has the more heavy rock and fuzzed out guitar stuff that would lend itself to go into a spacey section. But for part one where it's, it's just, it's acoustic folk blues kind of really it's, it's, it, it should be that, and it goes into a weird tape effect section that I feel is there to make it sound like Pink Floyd, maybe because he was not confident enough to release it as it was um, without that and still have it be Pink Floyd, um, or maybe he really did think that that was what the song needed, and um, I don't know that it works with that element, um, It doesn't. It's it's not bad. It's not bad. It's it's like you said. It's one of the stronger tracks on the studio side of the album for sure, by a long shot. I don't know how much uh, damning with faint praise that is, but um, it does it does feel to me like it's 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 searching for something and landing in in a space that's already been done better on other tracks. Um, yeah
0: it, it seemed to me that by and large really all of them maybe with the exception of Rick uh, but for it seemed to me that it was these guys were in the studio you know maybe with an engineer certainly but pretty much on you know on their own hammering out stuff and really not having much of a a plan um, I mean maybe a broad plan in terms of okay I'm gonna go and make some sounds and make some music and see if I can come up with anything, but really not much of a plan in terms of, okay, I've gone this section here and now let's take it over here. I think it became a matter of necessity to, I got to piece these things together because there's a deadline coming and we need to get moving. That's the impression I get, whether that was the actual working dynamic while they were recording each of them by themselves. Uh, who knows? But it, that's really the feeling I get from it.
1: Well, and that's what David Gilmore h- has said about his contribution to Umaguma. Is that he had nothing. He had no ideas. He didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't have. He had never, according to him, he had never written a song before. Now I know he's credited on. I think it was a Spanish piece to bring that up again. Um, from, right from Moore, I think was his first songwriting, you know, credit by himself before this one. So really he hadn't done much songwriting on his own. And when he got to the studio he had little bits and pieces that he'd played, whether it be you know, chunks of blues riffs that he had played in concert or stuff he had sort of messed around with. But once he got into the he was the last member of the band to go into the studio a couple of months after the rest of them had already started. And, you know, it 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 definitely it, it in places you can see the seams uh, or you can hear the seams, so to speak, of the different right. pieces getting patched together. And, um, you know, Gilmore is a strong enough musician. I think this is the most um, accomplished piece of music on the album because of just the fact that David Gilmore is such a strong multi instrumentalist. I mean, he's playing uh, everyone's part, so to speak. On right this including the drums including the drums yeah. Yeah. yeah and and he's not he's not totally uh inept at playing the drums he's he's actually quite quite a skilled you know timekeeper and it, his drumming serves a song he's got a little bit of a little bit of Nick Mason in him when it comes to some of the fills that I'm hearing on on the narrow way um but oh you know overall it's 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 kind of a shame that that David Gilmour at this point didn't have a strong enough um songwriter uh pedigree um before being told hey, you've got to fill ten minutes worth of an album by yourself I think that's that's a very daunting challenge to put to anyone, much less someone who's not had that experience of writing a song by themselves before and going in to record it, knowing it's going to get put on the album and everyone's gonna hear it and um for those, you know for having the the deck stacked against him in that way, I think what came out of it it's it's, along with Grant Chester Meadows, one of the stronger pieces of music on the album. Um, it was uh, something as I was listening to it, I, I heard little bits of, like, oh, this sounds like this sounds like echoes, you know? There's a little piece where I'm like, okay, maybe there's a little bit of germ there for echoes that's going to pop up in, in a couple years. Um, when we get to part three and he actually starts, you know, singing, there we go, there's some lyrics, there's some some vocal uh sections that are sorely needed on this album, which only has two vocal sections uh, or two songs right. with vocals on it. Um, you know, he's, 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 he's in the studio. He's, he's, he's writing and he's recording. And at one point he asks Roger Waters, Hey, can you, can you help me write some lyrics? And Roger's like, no, <laughs> that's, that's not the assignment, David, uh, go do it yourself. And, um, that would be a thing I, that came up in, in later years, uh, once Roger wasn't with the band anymore, and it w- it was David's group, and David is the chief songwriter, and David has to come up with lyrics for these songs he's writing. That's always been a challenge for David. Um, and he's 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 coped to that. he's 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 mentioned that in interviews that that writing lyrics is not something he's particularly strong he's not gifted with that talent he hel- he has co-writers help him with lyrics um even his wife helps him write lyrics for for Pink Floyd records and for his solo records so you know to to hear him struggling this early um i think what he got out of it i think the final recorded pieces narrow way it's 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 strong especially when you when you give him that handicap of hey go do something you've never done before
0: yeah it's it's one of the strongest, certainly I think the strongest section in terms of what each of them have uh, produced uh, as far as a, an entirety is concerned uh, of each of their contributions. It's, uh, it's, he has some nice stuff going on. Uh, the guitar is clearly starting to sound like the quote-unquote David Gilmour guitar sound—you're starting to hear it uh, when he's when he's playing on this. Um, it's not entirely there yet, but you're starting to hear it. Yeah, he's inching uh, closer. Yeah, inching closer. You know, it's uh, Floyd wasn't built in a day, <laughs> uh, but um, he does an admirable job. I mean, the guy was a for all practical purposes. A noob, I mean, just a a neophyte, certainly in terms of uh, writing music, and uh, produced a very, very strong section of music for the album. And, you know, hats off to him for that. Uh, It's not without its bumps. Uh, You know, the psychedelic freakouts almost start to sound awkward at this stage. But uh, it's, you know, as we discussed in terms of the. yeah, you know, the audience. This is for an audience, Dave. And whether he was thinking that or not, who knows? But I like what he produced here. It's a, it's a uh, it's a good part of the album.
1: Yeah, I like it too. I think I think that the the best parts definitely um, the they they outweigh or they they the best parts overcome the weaker sections uh, of the track. And it and it it's a good. Piece of music in an album that doesn't have a lot of good pieces of music. Um, it's not just sound. It's we're gonna play something that you would want to listen to again, and it's one of only a, f- a couple of tracks on the album that I would say, you know what, let's put on the narrow way. I'll listen to that again.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly. This is one that could uh, that could st- it could stand uh, repeated play. Maybe not so much as Grandchester Meadows because. This does have its moments where it goes off the edge and uh, spends a while climbing back up. But it's David Gilmour playing guitar, and it's cool because you can hear it's him. And understanding the, the, I guess, the difficulty at the time, you know, what he was up against to do it, it, um, it that's impressive that he was able to go into his studio and put out something like this. It's not Mozart, but uh you know for a guy of his experience level at the time, good guitar player, even better vocalist uh but you know he hadn't spent a lot of times in studios yeah uh but he still was able to put out something uh legitimate
1: and and you think about it you know later later on, much later on, you know a David Gilmore solo. Produced, written Pink Floyd track. I'm thinking of stuff that, uh, you know, the the instrumentals from the Division Bell or from a, a momentary rap lapse like Cluster One and stuff like that. That's sure. kind of what I feel, you know, that if if I that's what I would expect to hear from from David. Um, but at this point in his in his musical journey and his songwriting journey, he just wasn't there. And I don't think he had the confidence yet to go in and say, "All right, I'm going to lay down some really atmospheric uh, uh, chords, maybe on uh, a keyboard, and you know, just play some nice bluesy solos over that." He wasn't he either he wasn't interested in that, or he didn't think he could get away with that.
0: Right? Yeah, I think it was a little of both. Uh, if he would had just decided to take the lazy man's route, then yeah, he could have just put up a, a an entire album full of blues or guitar that sounded bluesy uh, but it uh, he had Pink Floyd fans to satisfy as well as you know, the there may have been a, comp, a, comp, a competitive aspect going on as well you know each of us has to turn out our piece I want to make it great I want to be better than anyone else if only for the bragging rights and then having to come to grips with how much work it is to actually produce a piece of music. But he was able to muddle through it and uh, turn out something good.
1: Yeah. And I was, I was just thinking about, um, so his first solo album, the David Gilmore album was uh, 1978. So less than 10 years removed from this. And, you know, he's writing everything. He's writing all the music. He's still having people help him with lyrics. But you know, there's three instrumentals on that album, and it opens with an instrumental, and there, and, and you can kind of tell, all right, this is, this is David Gilmour, sort of making a statement. This is who I am as a musician. I'm a guitar player. Um, listen, listen to what I can, what I can offer. And I think that, you know, for for the narrow way, either he wasn't interested, or he didn't think of it, or um, didn't think he could pull it off.
0: Like, I yeah. think at the time he was just a little bit out of his element. Mm-hmm. Uh, not entirely because he had been, of course, performing with the band and had been spending at least some time in the studio, but it was a collective effort. And then uh, for this particular project, it wasn't a collective effort, and it was well, it's you know, I got to produce something and mm-hmm. and
1: it's hard guy,
0: yeah <laughs> and he had enough but he had enough i don't know call it natural talent ability a muse uh you know he was able to put it together and deliver a a legitimate uh piece of music or section of music on the album itself
1: yeah uh, and- and he was quoted later saying that the whole the whole project but especially the narrow way his contribution he, he, he's quoted saying it's a pretentious waste of time I don't agree with him here I think he pulled it off um, I think he's, he's selling himself short on what his contribution ultimately was to the album I think he's probably just having that memory that, that, <laughs> that PTSD of like oh my god I had to go into the studio by myself and come up with something
0: yeah, and I think also the, it's the sensibility to it as well, in that it wasn't a very sensible thing to do. Mm-hmm. But the it's kind of it's almost Spinal Tap in that <laughs> respect. Yeah, you know, we're all gonna we're all gonna. Here, here's an idea, lads. We're all gonna produce our own section of the album. You know we're a band we're in it together so we're gonna go work apart now because that's the direction the band needs you know there's a there's there's an absurd aspect to it uh that you know in hindsight to me seems kind of funny and uh but at the time, I'm sure when you know Gilmore's the last guy to get his stuff done, and I'm sure there was times where he did not want to be there, but he had to be there yeah. to get the work done
1: and and feeling the pressure of okay it's my turn i haven't i haven't done my homework yet
0: right or <laughs> gee i hope this works yeah well but, uh, one oh, oh, one final thought oh yeah is uh one thing uh um i think nick mason said to the extent of, about this uh about this project was is uh we never did it again
1: right <laughs> yeah yeah, that that shows just how much uh, the band felt uh, that they were doing something right. Is is by the end of it, they're like, mm, yeah, let's not do that again.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. It, even though, as I mentioned earlier, it, the album sold pretty well, but it wasn't on the uh, the strength of the of the of the idea of let's all generate our own <laughs> pieces of music uh, for you know let's make little mini solo albums. You no, know, that's just Bad idea. Um, and, you know, I don't know what made them think that they could get away with it, but they got away with it. Barely. Barely. <laughs> Barely. I mean, the album sold, and, you know, people, uh, you know, Pink Floyd fans certainly know the album and are familiar with it, and uh, its strengths and its weaknesses. But and there's a lot of Great material on it, but there's a lot of material that's just not quite right, just not fleshed out. Uh, Which brings us to the final cut on the album, which I think is possibly the best named Pink Floyd song (laughs) there is The Grand Vizier's Garden Party.
1: Uh, by Nick Mason and if you're you know if if you're if you're in a band and you're the drummer and your band comes to you and says alright here's what we're doing for our next album everyone has to write and record their own solo piece of music and again you're the drummer your your first thought is but I'm the drummer
0: (laughs) and not only that he's the drummer that Never really did drum solos.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's not a, he's not the flashiest drummer ever. He's, he's not. He's,
0: he's he's not Buddy Rich. <laughs>
1: no, and and he's he's a very um, or Keith Moon. No, and he, he's 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 not that. He's not that drummer. He doesn't like. He he doesn't want to be that drummer. He's he's
0: exactly.
1: He said it before, where you know he he didn't really care for the the gymnastics of. Uh, sort of the wild drummers of the day. He was he was a drummer that serviced the music that his band was playing, and the music that his band was playing did not call for flashy drum solos. He's he's a good timekeeper. He his fills are are good when they appear, and that's that's his job. And so I can imagine being in that meeting or being in that room and being Nick Mason and suddenly I've got to come up with something. Of course the first thought is extended drum solo, you know. Um right. And that's that's not what he wanted to do and it's not what he ended up doing. Um there is a drum solo section kind of in this in this track, but it's not a drum showcase.
0: No, it certainly is not that. It's it's a showcase for percussion and a flute, but uh Briefly, but it is uh, Nick Mason banging on various things and um, not being very rhythmic about it.
1: No, it's and this is one of the more you know it, it it compare with several small species or for parts of Sisyphus where we kind of throw away the idea that this is going to be a song that you that's going to be a song period, but that it's going to be a piece of music or noise that you're going to listen to over and over Um, it's going to be one that you listen to and you're going to say okay I hear you interesting there's some interesting things going on but I'm not going to put this on again I don't want to listen to this again Um, because I'm listening to I want to listen to music and it's not music I would hesitate to call it music it's musical in pieces in sections but it's not music
0: right it's not a it's not a song on the radio it's not that it has to be something to dance to, but there, there's no backbeat. <laughs> yes. It's a, it is a... This is more of the... Uh, obviously, the song itself, the Grand Vizier's Garden Party, is not Revolution 9, but it's just... I hate to use the term noise because noise gives it a, you know, grating, unlistenable quality. You can listen to this... And uh, it's interesting, and you can try and figure out what was going on with Nick Mason when he was when he put it together. But uh, there's nothing to hum, yeah. or anything like that. It's uh, it really feels underproduced, like uh, it was like missing three other instruments. <laughs> Almost and,
1: as if you could like bring in other people
0: to yeah, play right. those instruments. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. If only he, if only he knew people. If only he <laughs> could be in a band. If only he
1: had collaborators.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Well, and, and as much as David Gilmore appeared to to struggle with with finding his voice and finding his what his contribution was going to be. Um, I don't get that sense from Nick. I feel like Nick went into this with an idea and with a level of confidence that he could pull off the idea that was in his head. Um, we have, you know, so what do we have? We have his wife is playing flute, as she did on some tracks from the Moore soundtrack. She she reappears as a, the, the flutist, the flortist? I'm not quite sure. I think um, it's
0: flautist, but floutist. I really don't know.
1: She plays a flute, okay, and yeah.
0: uh that much we know
1: that much we know, and it goes from some some okay flute melodies into um various percussion instruments combined with some some stereo effects and some tape effects um but the key word is that they're all experiments where we hear. I think I think what he wanted to do was to present noise, or again, loaded word, noise, but sounds that the audience had not heard before. So it's cutting in and out. Um, you, you've got some playing with speed, playing with playing things in reverse. Um, meant to, I think for the listener, as you hear it, you say, okay, I hadn't heard anything like that before. That was interesting. But are you going to put it on again and listen to it again? Probably not. And that's where, that's that's the criticism of this album in, in particular, is that it doesn't have a lot on it that you want to go back to and listen to again. Not, and I agree with you, it's not that it's bad in the point where it's unlistenable, where you're like, oh, God, turn that off. It is, however, just not anything that I'm going to go put on again because I want to hear it again again. Um, I'm not going to get there's
0: there's nothing that to these songs that makes it makes them stand out unto themselves uh where you would for example go you got to hear this song there's this one part that's amazing there's nothing like that going on it's it's a collection of little musical and unmusical motifs uh I'm not going to say cobbled together, but strung together Mm -hmm. uh, and presented as part of a greater whole. And that really is what it is, but it's not a – it's not really an impressive effort. The effort is impressive. I'll give him that. But – and the (laughs) ambition – The the result, uh, however – yeah the result falls short, and that's too bad. those things happen and you know, good for them, they were becoming popular at that point, and people bought the record anyway mm-hmm. uh <laughs> I mean, at that point, they knew that they weren't gonna be played on the radio um mm-hmm. at least as a singles band and so it's not like they were with this effort they were you know digging digging in a, in a vein of gold that they could exploit. Uh, they had to get a record out, and they decided to take an interesting direction. And that's, that was very brave of them, certainly. But it wasn't a, uh, well, as Nick Mason said, we never did it again.
1: And Nick Mason has solo albums yeah i'm looking at the box set on my on my oh, shelf truth. right now yes he does and and i've listened to them and they're they're pretty good like i like i like the the solo albums that he's done he's got collaborators he's got people um uh working with him and they are meant to be musical albums as you would expect to hear you know they're they're sort of jazzy or uh sort of synthy i guess i think one of them i remember but you know they're they're listenable as music you, you can put that on And listen to it as music. Something like Grand Vizier's Garden Party. You listen to it as sounds. I don't know how much appeal there is to 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 repeated listenings of sounds.
0: Yeah, it's um, it sounds and soundscapes, but it kind of falls short of a soundscape in that it's there really isn't a world or a landscape being created by these by these experiments in uh, audio editing. Really, um, you know, audio recording and edit, editing. Yeah, there, and there's uh, a
1: there's a technical achievement aspect to it, but yeah. there's not much of an audience impact. Aspect yeah, yeah,
0: certainly, and obviously, nothing that you would be uh, using, you know, playing in your concerts. Um, oh yeah,
1: there's nothing. There's nothing to play.
0: Right. Although <go> pl- <clears throat> <go, throat> there are go elements, the you know, we were discussing earlier about the fly. Buzzing around the, you know, across the quadraphonic system Mm -hmm. in the uh, in the concert hall, and uh, that that was, uh, you know, whether they pulled it from the live concert and used it on the album, or did it on the album and then moved it out into the live concert, I don't know uh, what the order of things was for that. But that was something that was part of this, uh, this collection of solo artistry that did make it into the live show a very small part
1: well and and i was thinking about you know for nick mason as the drummer to be asked by the group to to write and perform a solo piece of music for the album you know the first thought is you know a drum solo um or some sort of a drum showcase kind of like David right. Gilmour could could have could. just gone in and done a a bluesy guitar showcase but he didn't whether Nick wanted to or was able to or felt confident that that would be enough um I kind of had the same thoughts that I had for for the Narrow Way for David Gilmour what he did they did basically Nick didn't do what was maybe expected um when you're when you understand like okay the the drummer's going to come up with something it's going to be a drum solo and I like drum solos I like And I got a DeVita. I like uh, Moby Dick, and those are drum performances. I I like listening to those, and I would like to hear Nick go for a four or five or six-minute drum solo just to hear it, because I like listening to drum solos. Um, But in this instance, either wasn't interested or didn't feel like that was within the spirit of the project, but... um, that was that was my thought. It could have been a good drum showcase, but it wasn't, and it probably wasn't meant to be.
0: Right, and I think they consciously made the decision to steer away from uh, their comfort zones, I guess you could say. I mean, Rick, for his piece, does include some very nice uh, piano work. Until it devolves into a psychedelic freakout. Yeah, Rick could have given Pink uh, Floyd. Rick could have gone
1: Rick, the way of Great Gig in the Sky or something, and and performed a very lovely, melodic piece of piano-driven music.
0: But yeah, he, and going back to Spinal Tap, you know, lick my love bump, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, ah, but he didn't. Yeah, but he didn't. Uh, and so that was brave, and as brave of all of them. You know, a bit hubristic. You know, good thing it worked out for him. Uh, But uh, just a a crazy idea that did not work, except it didn't sink him either. You know, it's not like when this album came out, the reviews were going, you know, these guys have totally lost it. You know, how dare they? Um, Their fan base was able to weather it. And, you know, as we discussed earlier, the fact that there was some seriously good live recordings on the uh, first half of the uh, the album itself uh, helped carry it and keep it a, uh, you know, an album that people were buying. Uh, but as far as Nick Mason's uh, The Grand Vizier's Garden Party, uh, I like that he had a structure to it. The music itself... Is not very structured in of itself, but the structure in the sense that it was the first part is the entrance, the second part is called entertainment, and the third part is the exit, and uh, that is the 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 itinerary for the Grand Vizier's bar- garden party. So each of it is se- you know is sectional. Each of it is in, in sections, and. Each of it goes off in its own direction as they progress. And um, some of it's nice. I thought the entrance uh, had... You know, the flute was pretty and mysterious and, you know, exotic. And it did get a... I guess it it did what it was supposed to do in the artistic sense in that it did... uh, you know, make me wonder about the music and where it was going, and was able to have that going on, but uh, as a whole, uh, it's, uh, dope. Nick is doing some stuff here, and he's doing some stuff here, and he's doing some other stuff there, and it just is not a uh, well. It's it's not really music. It's a it's a collection of, of percussion, percussional motifs, I guess.
1: Yeah. And uh, on the whole, I think this, this is an album that, this is probably the only time in their career where the band could have put out an album like this and survive it. Um, because up to that point, if you're good a Pink point, Floyd fan, point. yeah, if you're a Pink F- uh, Floyd fan up to that point, you kind of expect to hear something like this like you're you're there for the kind of weirdness of the band um, and if you're new to pink floyd you have no expectations of of the band i think i think if they followed up uh, you know dark side or the wall with an album of solo experiments i think you'd i think you'd have a you you'd have heard a lot more about this album <laughs> but oh yeah certainly um but you this
0: know, isn't the, this isn't the album that i would use to Introduce someone to Pink Floyd, either.
1: I think it's probably the last album I would play for anyone.
0: Yeah, I when I, when I think about it, it's you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, one, I, one of the last certainly. Listening to um, it
1: this week was probably the first time I listened to it since I got it, and I got it a long, long time ago, and it's um, it's it's probably my least listened to. Pink Floyd album um, just because I don't know if I'm grabbing a Pink Floyd album off the shelf to listen to it's not going to be this one
0: yeah when the I listened to it when the uh, the the PBS recordings that they made when that uh, when those became available uh, and they played Grandchester Meadows in that in that uh, in when they did those recordings yeah. So I picked up the album again and that was like maybe 5 or 6 years ago when I first heard heard about that and because that's when I think the recordings had been discovered and released or whatever.
1: Yeah. Just
0: the same, it was so it's been about 5 or 6 years since I had listened to this album and I think I only listened to the live parts, the you know, the live section and Grandchester Meadows. And that was it. I, I I, think I started to listen to Sisyphus and went, Yeah, I'm <laughs> really not in the mood. Didn't and make was, it. Sorry, Rick. <laughs> I didn't make it. So I did not listen to the album front to back. Although I did listen to the album just the other day, front to back, uh, prior to this, doing this podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah. Re- re- revisiting it for the podcast is probably the first time I've listened to it since whenever it was. I was going through my must-collect-every-Pink Floyd album. Right phase, <laughs> you know, um, it's a good, and, and, and good phase to have and listening to it back again is like, mm, I don't know. Um, almost feel like you could pick out Grandchester Meadows, pick out most of the narrow way, and save those for for the next album, which you probably, if you're the band, you probably should have done. and that wouldn't, you know there, there's precedent later on after um it was after Dark side. They they decided. Well, what are we gonna do now? And they had the someone had the idea to make an album completely using um, objects from around the house, household, right, ob- to, the, the household to make objects.
0: The house, household objects make them sound like musical instruments.
1: And that didn't work out. And they threw ninety nine percent of that material away. And it turned
0: out to be a terrible idea. Just more trouble than it was worth.
1: Right. And I think that I think this album teeters on that uh, on that edge you know you kind of feel like if they got pushed a little bit more they would have just thrown their hands up and said never mind but they wound up getting something done and some of it's pretty good some of it's not so great um, well, <laughs> Jerry do you want to uh, go through now and uh, I know there's not a lot to pick from but uh, what would you say are the best and uh, not best uh, tracks from Umaguma
0: well Discounting the live material, which I think is a class unto itself, uh, I'm not going to include those as part of my best and worst tracks on the album. Uh, except for Careful with That Axe, Eugene. Uh, we had heard those songs before and we'd already discussed them. Um, and I think Astronomy Domine was my favorite track for Piper of the Gates of Dawn. Mm hmm. All that said, we're just as far as the Pink Floyd band members are concerned and their contributions to the album. Um, I really like Roger Waters' Grandchester Meadows. I think it is, I can listen to that song over and over, and it's a just a really nice piece of music. It's, uh, it's beautiful. I, I love that song. Uh, and I love how Roger produced it there's a the um PBS recordings he and Gilmore do a duet together which is also uh worth a listen and worth a look uh but it's uh that would be my best track on the album as far as the uh worst the one that I did appreciated the least um Really, when you get down to it, I appreciate the Grand Vizier, <laughs> Grand Vizier's Garden Party the least. As much as I love the name, and as much as I like what Nick Mason managed to put together, you know, the form that it took, uh, uh, it's uh, there's nothing going on there, nothing there that works for me at all. How about yourself?
1: Well, yeah, um, I'm kind of with you, In I wish I could cheat and say careful with that axe, Eugene, um, but that's not uh, it's not in the spirit of what we're doing here. So, um, yeah, definitely the live, the live stuff is, is the highlight of the package, but as far as the studio album and the new tracks are, are, are considered, um, if you had asked me before I listened to this again, I would have said probably The Narrow Way because it's the one I remember liking, Um from my previous listen, Um, but now going back and and hearing it again, I'm going to agree with you that Grant Chester Meadows is probably the, the strongest piece of music on, on the album. It's the most um, focused and complete song. Um, It does have its uh, uh, twists and turns and, and experimental Pieces to it, um, but it's it's a it's it's the one I would go back to. It's the one I would program into a compilation if I had to pull one song from the album to to stack up against um, other tracks, especially other tracks from this period. Um, I think the fact that they played Grandchester Meadows live, I think that the band would agree that that's probably the, the strongest overall track. Um, but Narrow Way, I think, is a is a is a is a close second for me, as far as uh, best tracks. Um, and then as far as the one that I would, I would cut all together, so the, the two sound collages, uh, the several species of small animals and the, the Grand Vizier's Garden Party, I, th- I, I would have chosen those. But I think I, I would leave those on just because they are not meant to be songs. They're not meant to be music. Um, and so taking them for what they are and for what they're meant to be, I think that they're worth keeping as interesting listens, um, as interesting compilations of sounds. Um, while I, I'll, I'll say it again, I don't think I would go back and, and listen to those again because I want to hear them again. I think they do the job of, I, I think they accomplish the goal of, of the artist in, in the sense that we want to put together... Some interesting sounds. So I'm not going to choose those. I'm going to choose instead Sisyphus as my least favorite track because it's almost music. Um, it's it's meant to it, be music. It
0: has brief moments, agreed.
1: Yeah, it's it's got a couple of good moments in it. Um, it's meant to be music or musical, and I don't think the music is strong enough on Sisyphus. I don't think it has a strong enough musical core. Um, before it goes into the outer space stuff. And the outer space stuff is not particularly interesting to hear. It's We're just banging on pianos and such. Um, so, yeah, I would say Sisyphus would be my weakest track on the album. Again, for the reason it's meant to be music, it's meant to be a song, and it's just not that great of a song. The other sound collages, while I wouldn't want to hear them again, they work as sound collages for me.
0: Yeah, well, it's uh, it's been quite an album to uh, to discuss. Yeah, I this mean, was a
1: challenging one,
0: Jerry. This was this one was very very uh, tricky, and at times I was at a loss on how to approach it. But apparently, we've been able to knock it out. So I'm going to say, and with that, the needle goes up, and we place the record back in its sleeve. Please look out for our next episode where we put on Pink Floyd's fifth album where the experimentation continues and the band hooks up with a symbolic orchestra on Adam Hart Mother. We'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a comment and rate the episode. Until next time, this is Jerry and Al on the Vinyl Sideways podcast. See you soon and shine on.